So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying, what he said. As he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's pray and ask him if he will bring it alive for us. Our dear Lord, as I read these words, first thing that comes to my mind is my own sinfulness. And the fact that I have absolutely no right to stand before these people to make an attempt to exposit such a passage of scripture as this. The image of your glory, the image of your holiness, the image of the the, the God nature as as the human nature is peeled back. These are things that I simply are too great for me. They're beyond me and I should not even be making an attempt. So I ask that your spirit would give me the words, that your spirit would provide the direction, that your spirit would stand between my completely inadequate attempt to deal with these and the understanding of the people who are here or who are watching online. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I told you last week as we took our first look at this passage, and again, as I said, we're, we're going to return to the same passage, not so much the 28th and 29th verses, but the, 30 for, the 30th verse and follows. But I started out by telling you that I had a daunting task, virtual impossible task. How do you describe that which is indescribable? How do you find words for something that there simply are no words Um, And so I said that what I was going to do was to turn to the Word of God and let him actually do the talking. And eventually, down to the 35th verse, God does talk and tell us what's going on. Well, the same is going to be true this morning, but with a little bit of a difference. You see, I think that the Holy Spirit knew that. I think that he knew that it would be very difficult for us to visualize this scene and to capture the full meaning of it. So he provided these two heavenly visitors, Moses and Elijah, to come along beside Jesus and to help us qualify and quantify what we're seeing. And so therefore, that's where we're going to focus um, uh, this morning uh, on, on the message. Last week, we looked at just the image, the glory that we were seeing. Well, this week, we're going to try to figure out, well, what on earth is going on? And, and, and to whose benefit is this? And what is actually the message that God is sharing with us in this text? Now, if you were here last week, you know, I also started out by defining two words for you, two words that you might not have found to be um, everyday words, uh, but they were very descriptive in describing what we were seeing. And those were the words refulgent and Shekinah. And I'll I'll touch on them in just a moment. Refulgence is just simply the gleaming, the shining of the glory that we are seeing. And the Shekinah is that glory, the glory of God as it emanates from Jesus here. Well, this morning I've got another word that I want to define, much more better known word than those two, and that's the word preeminence. I know that most of you are aware of what preeminence means, but let me just go ahead and define it so that it's absolutely clear. Now, the normal dictionary, the English dictionary, puts uh, gives us this definition, to be superior, 
or to be notable, to be above all others, outstanding, to have paramount rank, dignity, or importance. But unlike those two words that I described last week, this word actually is found in Scripture. Brother Clayton read it to you earlier out of the book of Colossians. And it translates a Greek word that has the following meaning, to hold the highest rank in a group, to be first, to have first place. And so that's the way we're going to use preeminence when we talk about the preeminence of Christ. He is the exalted one. He is the first. He is the last. He's the only one that's going to be left standing after the cloud leaves. He, he is complete and total our focus this morning. So Jesus is the preeminent one, first above all other people, all other beings. And in fact, um, Brother Clayton read you that magnificent passage from Colossians. Let me just read a few of those verses, not the whole thing, just to, 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 to bring back out the, the, the preeminence, the meaning of this word. Um, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Boy, that is a picture of preeminence. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And brothers and sisters, that's what I think the Lord is showing us by bringing these two heavenly visitors so we can compare them with Jesus. And what we're going to find out is that I think the message is centered around the preeminence of Christ. Now, put this in its context and to remind you a little bit of what we looked at last week. Luke, in this part of his gospel, has been sort of leading us up the side of a mountain, a crescendo, if you will. Um, and it has to do with the divinity of Christ. He has really been hammering us as far as the divinity of Christ and all those great miracles that Jesus worked that only God could do. And then earlier, when he asked his disciples, who do you say? that I am and Peter articulating the answer for all of them said you are the Christ of God well that has been leading us to the apex of that mountain if you will figuratively which is the transfiguration where we actually see the human nature veil lifted and the divine nature of Jesus the glory that he had with the father before the foundations of the world before the incarnation to come clearly through for us to see. So we, we're at the top of that particular mount. Well, there's some other themes that are converging here, and they'll be important today. One of those themes is what Jesus totally shocked his disciples just a few verses ago by saying that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He must be rejected, suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. I mean, they simply don't know what to do with that. I mean, yes, we can maybe understand Jesus as God, but how on earth does God get killed at the hands of mortal men? Well, we're going to try to understand that today. I think that's Peter's big problem, that he just can't grasp that, can't get his head around that. But then secondly, or at least thirdly, the, 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 the other theme is the theme of the disciples because we've seen them begin to take on more of an important part. They've gone out. They've been given the power to heal, to cast out demons, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in a couple of verses, we're going to see 72 disciples sent out. So we're sort of beginning to make that transition into what's going to happen in the kingdom of God after Jesus leaves. Well, very important is their understanding of who Jesus is and what he is about to do on the cross. And so, therefore, that's very much a part of this passage. Now, as I said, last week we sort of concentrated on just trying to, to, to visualize the image before us, the amazing image of the transfiguration of Jesus. It happens about six days after the conversation that we just talked about, which was up in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, they, they, they're on their way down towards uh, Capernaum, and on the way they stop off by a mountain, probably Mount Miron, which is about 
4,000 feet tall. Not the traditional site. But nonetheless, they, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter and John and James, and they go up on top of the mountain to pray. Now, it is while Jesus is praying that this transformation occurs. Luke tells us that his face became other. <laughs> it, that's what the word means. It, it just became other than what it was. And it's a word that actually means something indescribable, something that is totally and completely unique that the disciples had absolutely never seen before, other than it was. Of course, Matthew tells us that his face began to shine like the sun as that Shekinah, the refulgent Shekinah of God began to emanate out of Christ. And we talked about the dazzling clothes that Luke tells us that it wasn't the clothes that became dazzling. That means to be light up as if a 300 million volt uh, flash of lightning had hit you. And it's a stunning kind of shocking uh, flash of light in that nature. Well, that's what happens to Jesus' clothes, but it's not the clothes that are turning like that. That's the glory of Christ shining through the clothes to that degree. So... We have this amazing picture that is going on on top of that mountain. Now, we jump down to the 35th verse. Rather than trying to figure out what that meant ourselves, we jump down to the 35th verse and we let God do the explaining. Now, we're going to return there this morning. So I'm going to leave that until we get on through that. We have a lot of text to make up today. So with that said, let's jump into this text and let's see the explanation, if you will, or an enrichment of the vision, what we saw in the 28th and 29th verses. Now we're going to see put into its perspective, if you will. So join me as we start uh, this morning in the 30th verse. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah. And I think most of you know that when you see that word behold, it's asking you to stop and look, to pay attention, that, that don't read over this and not see it. Ask yourself the kinds of questions we're going to ask this morning. Why Moses and Elijah? And, and why did these two Old Testament super saints, if you will, appear next to Jesus in the time of his transfiguration. Well, obviously there's a comparison to be made. There's other reasons that Moses and Elijah were sent, reasons that I think were specifically for Jesus himself at this particular time. But uh, as far as just the, the question, why were these men the two that were chosen, let's kind of delve into it a little bit more. Now, the obvious association, I think, with Moses and and Elijah, Moses, of course, was the one that God gave the law to. And so his name is almost synonymous with the law. Malachi puts it this way, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So Moses is really referred to as the law of Moses. So when you talk about Moses, you can talk about the law and Elijah, of course, was the quintessential prophet. He was one of the, the, the leading prophets and actually kind of formed a dynasty of prophets who came after him. But a prophet, as you know, was not just someone who predicted the future. A prophet was also someone who said, thus saith the Lord. And we hear this in First Kings after he raised the son of the widow of Zarephath from the dead. She said to him, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So when we see Moses and Elijah in that context, what we're seeing is the law and the prophets. Now, I think most of you know that when scripture speaks of the law and the prophets, it's not just speaking of the five books of the Torah that Moses wrote and the major and minor prophets that came later, but it refers to the entire Old Testament canon, what was, what constituted all of Scripture in that day. So here's the image we have in front of us. Jesus transfigured before us and the Old Testament scripture standing right next to him in the Law and the Prophets. And that's a very important perspective, which 
Of course, we will get to that in just a moment. But there's also some other things about these two men that I want to bring out that make them very significant here. Um, For one thing, they both were very involved with preparing or setting the stage for the Messiah. They're, They're very much associated with that. Moses probably was, well, he definitely was the first one to tell us in Scripture all the way back in Genesis 3.15, which was one of the books he wrote. We we learn about the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That's talking about the Messiah. But it was also in Deuteronomy 18. Now, if you remember Christmas Eve, if you were here, we looked at Deuteronomy 18, the 15th and the 18th verses in which We read this, Um, I will raise up a prophet for you among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. Well, that's one of the first indications that there's going to be a Messiah, a prophet like Moses. And if you were here on that night, you know I made the case or I made the point that there's only one person in all of history who actually was a prophet like Moses. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ. Now, not only was Moses, did he talk about the coming of the Messiah, but he was what is known as a type of the Messiah, meaning he's an Old Testament shadow of Jesus. He he points us forward to Jesus. So much of what he did in his life were just kind of laying out what Jesus was going to do in reality later on. Now, Elijah is a little bit different. Uh, Elijah um, was a type, definitely, and he pointed to someone, but it wasn't necessarily Jesus that he was a type of. In fact, Elijah, we know, was a type of the forerunner or the herald or the harbinger of the Messiah. Malachi also says this, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So everybody was expecting that when Elijah showed up, that that was the time that the that the Messiah was coming. And everyone, all the Jews in that day, had a wrong idea of who that Messiah would be. Now, we read several passages from Isaiah earlier. Well, Isaiah also spoke of this harbinger as a voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our gods. And so there, there, there's an association with these two men pointing to the very man that they're now standing next to in this incredible scene on top of that mountain. Thirdly, and I think very significantly, both of these men were among the very short list of men in the history of humanity on this planet who had actually witnessed the Shekinah, the glory of God. And I'm not talking about a vision, because other a lot of people, like I say, had a vision of the temple. But to actually, in a very personal way, to see the glory of God. Now, we know about Moses, very famously. Moses, when he went up on top of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, it's also known as, to receive the law. Well, when he came back down, his face was shining with the Shekinah glory of God. They had to put a veil over the face to keep people from seeing it fading. Well, same thing happened when he would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God. His face would absorb the Shekinah glory. So Moses, in a very special way, in fact, he even said to God one time, God, would you show me your glory? That's when God put him in the cleft of the rock and said, you can't see my face. I'll show you my backside. Very anthropomorphic, uh, you know, human explanation of the way God is. But Moses was was privy to that Shekinah. But then, then again, so was Elijah. Um, perhaps not in the same way, but definitely he was a um, uh, uh, he, he he knew that. Now, where, where we read about him is also in Kings, and and here's what um, God says to him, if I can find it. Um, oh yeah. Um, so he said, "Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord." This is God speaking to Elijah, and behold. The Lord was passing by. So Elijah also saw firsthand the Shekinah. And then, of course, we have that very famous uh, result. And there was a mighty wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. 
And then there was a great earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there was a great fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then there was a still small voice, and the Lord was in that voice. Well, that was the Elijah face-to-face with the Shekinah, the glory that is the glory of God. Very few men actually saw that. And here they are. They're not of this world anymore. They're glorified to ascent themselves, to ascent themselves, which we'll see in a moment. But those three apostles, Peter and John and James, are seeing the Shekinah, the glory of God, like neither one of those men um, ever saw as Jesus reveals that great glory. So that was also a connection that both of these men have. So let me see if I can draw out the significance of the fact that it's Moses and Elijah. First of all, and let me just really emphasize this point if I can, almost being redundant, that these were the Old Testament super saints. These were the superstars of Judaism. You could not have picked two more significant, important men to first century Judaism than these two. And in fact, virtually anyone who would stand in the presence of these two men uh, would shrink to the background, would be the one that no one would pay attention to, that these two men would take center stage. But exactly the opposite is true here. We have these two great Old Testament saints, but it is Jesus that we are seeing. It is Jesus who is taking the moment uh, and, and the altogether lovely one here. Not only is, is that happening, but both Moses and, and, and Elijah are in some kind of a uh, of a glorified state. We don't know exactly what it looked like because, I don't know, do they have glorified bodies at this time? But in some way, the text tells us that they are glorified, but still... Jesus completely overshadows them. And this in and of itself is a statement of the preeminence of Christ. Picking the two most, the highest, most exalted in Judaism. And Jesus is even greater than them. And one last thing I I think before we start to look at that preeminence. uh, And these two men are not only important in Judaism... They are hugely important in redemptive history. In other words, God has a plan. He's had a plan before the foundations of the world about his his redemption and how he was going to redeem his people and how their sins were actually going to be atoned for. And, and the only way that that could possibly happen is the way that it actually did happen. And God has planned it. happened by the definite knowledge of foreknowledge and plan of God. There, there's no question about that. And so therefore, when these two men appear, we're, we're looking at Jesus now, not just in the glory that we're seeing, but as the culmination, the most important part, the preeminent one in God's redemptive plan, which is consummated, completed, and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, with that said, with that kind of an idea of what's going on with these two visitors, let's let's put it into the perspective of the three of them. Because I believe that's what we are supposed to see. We are supposed to make a comparison. And the first one, going back to where we started, boy, you talk about an extraordinary statement. Here we have Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament revelation, if you will, the summation of all the books of the Bible, not just the law and the prophets, but the history books, the wisdom books, the poetry books, everything that God has revealed up until that point are standing there and we see Jesus now as the Logos, the word of God, the living word, totally preeminent over these Two men, oh, totally preeminent over the Old Testament. Now, don't get me wrong, that does not mean that the Old Testament is no longer of any value. Of course, Jesus very famously said in his Sermon on the Mount that I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
to consummate them, to complete them. That's the reason that Jesus came, so that 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 he would bring that to its completion. But what Jesus did, and what Jesus did so much is that he he explained it. Remember on the road to Emmaus when when he turn the light on for those two disciples so that they would see and understand what all these Old Testament things meant. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He is going to bring the the, the explanation of what goes on in the Old Testament. In other words, what was that sacrificial system for if the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins? I mean, what does that mean? What did it mean when Moses held up that snake in the desert and everybody who looked upon it was healed? What do all those Old Testament references mean when Jesus came and he just turned the light on them? Uh, Peter tells us in his gospel or his letter that when the prophets were given all of this information, they wrote it down faithfully, but they didn't understand what it meant. In, in other words, they're looking at it and they're saying, they're diligently trying to figure it out. In fact, these were mysteries that even the angels longed to look into. And the one who stands on the top of the mountain besides the law and the prophets is the one who is going to make it all extremely clear. So Jesus is preeminent over the law and the prophets in that way. He's also preeminent in another way. There's there's another thing that both of these men have that Jesus also has that draws the three of them together. All three of these men were deliverers. All three of them, God had called for a purpose of delivering his people. Again, most famously, you know the story of Moses. You know what God said to Moses up on um, Mount Sinai when he said uh, that, uh, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. We, we, we know that. We know that he was sent as a deliverer. They're in bitter bondage. They're in slavery to Pharaoh. And in a beautiful picture of God's redemption and salvation, he brings them out of Egypt. He sets the captives free. He leads them through that Red Sea, a beautiful sign of, 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 of salvation in and of itself. And then they praise God on the other side saying, thank you, God, that you delivered us from our slavery. So Moses was a deliverer. Elijah was a deliverer on actually many different levels. He delivered the people of God from a terrible, terrible famine, from a drought. He is the one that God used to bring that that drought to an end. But he also delivered the people from a horrible apostasy and idolatry that under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel, all the people had fallen into a terrible state and were facing the wrath of God. So Elijah came to deliver them from that. And this is what he said to those people. He came to them and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. Who can forget that amazing scene on top of Mount Carmel? You know, remember when the prophets of Baal are there and, and, and Elijah's taunting them? You know, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he just doesn't hear you. And then he called the fire down upon that sacrifice. Well, that delivered the people as we read. All the people saw it. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord He is God, the Lord. He is God. And so therefore, Elijah was a great deliverer. Brothers and sisters, neither one of these men delivered the way that Jesus did. Neither one can stand against him. He is the preeminent deliverer of all time. Because it wasn't just a particular people group and it wasn't just from a petty tyrant of the day and it wasn't just from a famine or a drought Jesus delivered across the space of time all who would believe in him from from their sin and 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 even more important than that it is deliverance from the wrath of God who in his holiness 
cannot abide sin. And so therefore, Jesus came to set the captives free. After all, that's what the angel told Joseph when he came. He said, his name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we know in the synagogue at Nazareth, when he's reading from the book of Isaiah, he reads this, that he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Brothers and sisters, let me just make something extremely clear. There is no greater deliverance than to be delivered from the wrath of God Over your fallenness. And so therefore there is no greater deliverer. Who has ever lived. Than Jesus the Christ. Who delivers you from those sins. He's preeminent as far as the deliverance is concerned. But here's where we get into the paradox. Here's where we get into the place that I think just causes Peter all kinds of trouble. We'll talk about him in a minute. Because on the one hand, we see this preeminent one, preeminent in glory, preeminent in deliverance, preeminent in all of the word, preeminent in revelation, all of this, the son of God shining forth with a refulgent Shekinah, an amazing scene, but he's not just preeminent in those things, as we just read from Isaiah, he's the preeminent suffering servant. He's the preeminent, preeminent sufferer. Now, all of these men suffered. All of these men were rejected. All of these men were horribly afflicted by the very people that they came to deliver. Do you remember when Moses was sent first to Egypt and he, he, he really kind of made a mess of it? You know, he thought he was going to go take care of uh, Pharaoh in, in no trouble. And uh, all he got was them having to make bricks with no straw. And of course, they just got furious at him. And they they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. I'm surprised they didn't stone him at the time. But of course, that wasn't in God's plan. But I mean, from that point on, they rebelled against him. They rejected him. They complained against him. They were a stick-necked people. I mean, after the plagues and the passing through the waters of the Red Sea, this is what they said to him. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? The very people that he went to deliver, they made him so mad that he struck the water, the rock of water twice and God wouldn't let him into the promised land because of that. They, they afflicted him. They rebelled against him. Uh, he suffered at their hands. Elijah also was a man who suffered immensely at the hands of the people that he came to save or to deliver. We read this in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, Killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. In fact, after Carmel, Jezebel said, (laughs) you're toast. I mean, I'm going to have your blood. There is no way that you're going to live very long. I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to destroy you. So Elijah lived his entire life afflicted by the very people that he came to deliver. Oh, but brothers and sisters, no one suffered like Jesus. No one suffered to the degree that Jesus suffered. No one was a suffering servant. You see, this is where we really have difficulty because no one is more exalted than him. He is the glory that we are seeing. But at the same time, no one suffered to the degree. No one was rejected as completely. No one went through the misery that he went through. John tells us in his gospel, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Of course, we know when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed and, 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 and mocked and spit upon. But that's not when it started. I mean, they did the same thing to him in Galilee. Remember in Nazareth, they tried to throw him off of a cliff. And we learned that even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Even his own brothers rejected him until... After the resurrection and then they became pillars of the church. As we read earlier in Isaiah. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred. 
beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. No one suffered like Jesus. And I'm not just talking about the rejection. I'm not just talking about the mocking. I'm not just talking about the spitting. I'm not just talking about the beating or the torture or even being nailed to the cross and the physical suffering that he went through. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and the, the, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He became that snake on the pole that Moses holds up. He became a curse on a tree. The one who had never experienced sin in his life allowed himself to be inundated with it so that he could pay the price for our sins. He was the greatest, the preeminent of all suffering servants. And when you hear that, when you hear me talk about that, or when you consider that scene of Jesus on the cross, don't don't exonerate or absolve yourself from that. Don't remove it. Don't look at the, the Jews or the are the Romans and say, look at the horrible thing they've done because it wasn't either one of them that kept Jesus on that cross. It was neither one of them that caused him to suffer to the degree that he suffered. It was you and it was me. It was our sins that nailed him to that cross. And the great suffering that he went through was not the suffering of a physical death. It was a suffering of facing the wrath of God as each one of us should. And those of us who put our trust in Jesus will not. What an amazing preeminence Jesus shows us as the suffering servant. And then finally, let's just go back to the text a little bit. I strayed from it. Um, But let's take a look at the end of that verse, 31st verse, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, so these two, these two great Old Testament saints, and hopefully I've given you an idea of the significance of those saints. They show up and they begin to minister. Now, notice what they talk about. Notice what the conversation is. Remember earlier I told you when we talked about his prayer that, that, that probably it's an educated guess. We don't know what Jesus was praying about, but we can guess that he was probably praying about the cross And that the cross became very real to him because he's going to turn his face to Jerusalem. Well, here we see that that's exact, excuse me, exactly what they're talking about. Hang on a second. Try not to do that into the microphone. You get a shock, wake some of you guys up. Um, But nonetheless, uh, the, uh, gosh, I shouldn't say things like that because I get completely um, off track. But anyway, no, I remember what I was talking about. They, 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 They come and they start to talk about his departure. Now, an interesting word is used for departure. It's in Greek, it's the word exodus. And so this is, this is the language of deliverance. I mean, this takes us back to Moses. In other words, what they came to talk to Jesus about was the great salvation, that Exodus story of taking the people out of slavery and moving them into a position where they are no longer under that bondage. Well, of course, we're talking about the, the bondage of sin. So obviously they came to talk to him about the cross. And we know that Jesus, uh, felt that weight of the cross tremendously so much so that in Gethsemane, which is, this is sort of a precursor of Gethsemane, um, he was, he actually sweat blood in that amazing scene that is there. So the very purpose of that visit was to talk about that. And I believe, and I'll make this clear later, I, I believe that it was to reaffirm to Jesus, especially in his humanity, I doesn't need it in his divinity, but to reaffirm to Jesus his place in redemptive history, to remind him, uh, this is the plan, okay, Elijah and Moses, very intricate parts of that plan, but you're the culmination, and to minister to him in that way as he began to to fret, or not fret, that's the wrong word, to, to consider the the, the horrors of the cross that lay before him. Well, then we hear from Peter. <laughs> I mean, what a scene. You know, let's just stop it there. You know, let, let's not go any farther. 
But we, we have to include this because this is a very important part of what happens. Peter is going to once again make a blunder. Now, if we follow the timing of Matthew and Mark, this is six days after his last blunder. It has not been a good week for Peter, okay, as far as making total blunders because twice in a week he's going to make the same mistake. So let's kind of dive into this in the 32nd verse. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now, I believe there's some symbolism here that I'm just going to have to read over for time's sake. Um, I, I believe there's some symbolism here uh, of them being asleep and then waking to the glory. It, that when you're asleep, you're, you're, you're not cognizant of what's going on around you. And I, I just I think there's symbolism there about the disciples being with Jesus every day and, and not recognizing who he really is. But can you imagine, can you try to put yourself in the shoes of Peter and Andrew, I'm sorry, Peter and John and James, that you wake up out of a deep sleep and you shake the cobwebs out of your your head, you you scratch your eyes, and before you is Jesus in all of his glory, along with the two most important saints of the Old Testament as far as you're concerned, Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine the emotion that would explode within those men? We're going to see Peter, who doesn't do well in explosive situations like this. You know, he's going to respond accordingly. But you know something? Matthew tells us they're terrified, and that's the normal way that people respond to the presence of God. But it had to have been the most beautiful thing anyone has ever seen. And I think we're getting into the realm where there just simply are no words. What beauty. There must have been of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ being shown out on that mountaintop with those two men beside him. Well, it'd been great if Peter just just sat there and enjoyed and soaked in the moment, but that he wouldn't be Peter if he did that. Look what happens in verse thirty-three. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, "Master, it is good that we are here." Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Okay, let's take a look at that first, and then I'll try to put us in Peter's perspective because I think it's important that we see it. First of all, uh, notice that the men were leaving, okay? And I think that's significant. They, They were taking their leave of Jesus at this particular point in time. The conversation seems to have come to an end at... Peter didn't want it to come to an end. He wanted to sustain it. He wanted to keep it in front of him. That's one of the reasons I think he's going to offer to build those tents. So as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good. Now, Master is the right way to talk to him. He is indeed the Master. But why on earth would Peter say it is good that we are here? what's so good about it? What, what is good about that? Now, we're going to see later on in just a moment that Peter completely misinterprets what he's looking at. He has been dreaming of this moment his whole life as every Hebrew has, the time when the Messiah would come in power and glory and lead Israel to be totally preeminent in all of the world. And he thinks that's what's happening. Now, I know that Jesus said this to Pilate later on, but I can only imagine that while he is teaching his disciples, he would say the same thing to them. But Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. This this is not the nature of the kingdom that I am king of, at least not now. There will be a day that I come in power and glory, but now I have come specifically so that I can be the preeminent suffering servant, the preeminent sacrificial substitutionary atonement for the sins of those who trust in me. And so that's the nature of my kingdom. But I don't think that Peter actually gets it. And that, I think, is why he says what he says next. Let us make three tents. Now, that word is kind of significant. It's the word tabernacle. Okay, that's the reason the tent of meeting was called the tabernacle. And it actually means a place of dwelling, a a place to dwell. And so Peter offers to make three tabernacles. Now, many people think it's because the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. It might have been. 
But I don't believe that's the reason that he offers to make these tabernacles. But going on, he says, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So once again, I think that he's totally misunderstanding the revelation that he is seeing before him. After all, wasn't Elijah supposed to appear before the great and awful day of the Lord? And there's Elijah, and there's Jesus in his glory. So, wow, the kingdom of heaven's upon us, right? And so we need to make some, some tents for you guys. And I think that this kind of explains why Peter says it's good that we're here. Because you've got some labor. You've got some people who can make these tabernacles for you. And after all, we need to hold you here. We need to need to talk about this thing. You guys are getting ready to leave. Well, we're supposed to be an, an, an intricate part of this. we got to find out what the plan is. So let's make some tabernacles so that we can hold on to the moment. And let's see this glory. Because this is an amazing, amazing thought. And it is obviously the dream come true for Peter. But then Luke ends this with a quote, and I, I don't doubt that this is actually a quote from Peter himself, or at least second or third hand. You know, Luke's the historian, and he interviewed a lot of people. So when we read that 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 he did not know what he said, he didn't know what he was saying. That, that is so Peter. You know, Peter is the open mouth insert foot guy. Uh, you know that if there's something blunder, he's going to be able to make that. He's going to do it. He's going to speak first and then think afterwards. And that brings us to the significance of this, and the reason I believe that this is here, and and, and I believe it's also very. Quite substantial. In order to explain it, we need to go back a week. I told you Peter's made two blunders in the same week. Well, about six days earlier, about a week earlier, up in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, articulating for the disciples, said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. So Peter does an amazing thing. And then Jesus turns right around and quoting from earlier in Luke, or not quoting, but paraphrasing, he says, The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be rejected and suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And when Jesus said that, Matthew tells us, Peter said, not on my watch. <laughs> it ain't going to happen, Lord. We're going <laughs> to, you know, far from the thought that you would ever go to Jerusalem and die that kind of death. As long as we're alive, you're never going to the cross. And that is when Jesus turned on Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. Now, the reason Jesus was so harsh with Peter is because Peter had unwittingly fallen into the exact same temptation that I'm sure that Satan has been hammering with Jesus with every chance he gets. It's the exact temptation that he hit him with in the desert, especially the last two. When he flashed all those kingdoms of the world in front of him and said, all of this can be yours and all the people in it. You can be the king of glory and you don't even have to go to the cross. And he said, jump off of the parapet, jump off the temple, and you'll force God's angels to come and keep you from striking your foot on a stone. And everyone will know that you're the Messiah, and you won't have to go to the cross. And now that's what Peter is saying. Oh, Lord, you're, you're glorious. You're our master and leader, and you don't have to go to the cross. And see, Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that that is the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus came as a substitutional, sacrificial atonement for sins. He's the Lamb of God. And unless Jesus goes to the cross, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Peter just doesn't quite understand that. And that's the reason that now when he says, wait a minute, this is wonderful. The kingdom of God is upon us. There's Christ in his glory. There's Elijah. Let's build three tabernacles. And let's begin the advent of the kingdom of God right now. And Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. 
You see, Peter just doesn't get it. And you wouldn't get it either if you hadn't been going to church for, you know, 2,000 years of scholarship. We still don't get it. We still can't get our minds around the fact that Jesus is God, the living word, that he's the incarnation of the great God of the universe. And he went to the cross to die with my sins upon him. That just boggles the imagination. Oh, but brothers and sisters, it does bring up one of the greatest of all the preeminence of Christ. For that kind of love, that when God sent his son, I'm unlovable, I'm I'm at enmity with him, and he sent his son to die for me, knowing that he would call me out of darkness. That love is preeminent love, brothers and sisters. That grace is preeminent grace. That mercy and compassion is the greatest in all of the universe. And so therefore, Jesus is preeminent in everything. Especially the loving compassion that sent him to the cross. Well, Peter still, you know, and and, and we have to give him uh, the understanding. Because, you know, he doesn't, he's not going to get it until Pentecost. And and as I said, we wouldn't get it either unless we had um, seen this. Uh, and the way that it is. So, all of a sudden a cloud appears. And, and I misspoke last week, and I've repented for it all week. I, I, I said that God told Peter to shut up. Um, and let me just repent of it again. I'm sorry. God, God wouldn't tell Peter to shut up. But he did interrupt him. And he did bring a cloud that stopped the, the, the path that Peter was going down and, and just cut it off, nipped it in the bud. And then he explains what was happening. So let's take a look at those. Verse 34. As he was saying these things, as Peter's talking, and he's getting all ready for the kingdom of God, the cloud comes. As he was talking, as he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them. That word overshadowed, <clears throat> excuse me, is the same word used of Mary when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Now, obviously, a different result but it speaks of the divine presence in that cloud. They were overshadowed by it. Well, as he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Read on a little farther. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, Okay, very dramatic situation actually is occurring here when God brings this cloud and uh, brings it right as Peter is saying, hey, let's make some tabernacles for for all three of you. And it's as if God came to say, Peter, Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle. My son doesn't need a tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God. That's what the angel said about him. His name shall be Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Jesus is talking about the temple. He says, destroy this temple and I will build it back in three days. Talking about the temple of his body. Beautiful picture that we have in Revelation. When John sees that great vision. He says, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. John would tell us in his gospel that we have seen his glory. The glory as the only one of the Father full of grace and truth. And he is the Logos, the word who became flesh and tabernacled is the word amongst us. Dwelt among us. He doesn't need a tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. He is God with us. God in the flesh. What a beautiful picture we have uh, of that. Well, anyway, um, he, he, he brings the cloud. Now, notice the language here, and I know it's a little confusing, but let me just bring it out. Um, that they were afraid, and they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, try to visualize that, because a lot of people say that, or think, that what that's saying is that a cloud came, and Peter and, and John and James disappeared in the cloud. Well, actually, that's not what happened. Um, because the they that are afraid are Peter and Jonathan James. But the they who disappear in the cloud are Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And the reason we know this is because God speaks to them out of the cloud. And, and if they were in the cloud, 
They would have said God spoke to them in the cloud, but they're out of the cloud. So God was speaking out of the cloud. They came and obscured Jesus and Moses and Elijah from their sights. In, in a sense, the heavenly chariot has arrived, uh, has arrived because that's going to take these two away. But that is when God says the three things that we talked about last week. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, last week, we, we looked at those from the perspective of the glory of Christ. This week, I want to look at it from the perspective of preeminence. Now, as I've said before, and I know that I'm hammering this in redundantly, but those two men are among the most significant men in redemptive history. Certainly, as far as Peter and James and John are concerned, you couldn't have picked two more significant men. But God doesn't say, look, here's Moses and have you ever asked yourself how they knew it was Moses and Elijah? You know, it must have been the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you're right. Because, they, you know, they've never seen a picture of him. Uh, but nonetheless, they know it's, it's Moses and Elijah. But God doesn't say, here's the, here's the most important group in redemptive history. He says, here's my son, the preeminent one. The one who's going to bring everything that these two men did to its pinnacle, to its success, to its completion, its culmination. This is my son. He goes on and says, this is my chosen one. I told you last week, that's a very rare phrase, chosen one. And then in the Old Testament, it's only used twice. Once to speak of David and once to speak of Moses. So Moses is a chosen one. Elijah is a chosen one. In fact, all three of those disciples are all chosen ones. Now, did God say anything about a convention of chosen ones on top of the mountain? No, he singled out his son. He says, this is my son. He is my chosen one. From before the foundations of the world, he has been my chosen one. And he is the one that is chosen to bear the sins of humanity on his back. So God is making Jesus the preeminent one. And then he says, listen to him. And, and, and once again, I, I don't want to belittle the Old Testament. I, you, you know that I'm not one of those. I, I put great importance on the Old Testament. It's all the word of God. But Jesus completes it. He consummates it. He fulfills it. He turns the light switch on so that we can understand what it means. And so when God says, this is my son, listen to him, he doesn't say, hey, there's Moses who wrote the Torah, listen to him too. Or there's Elijah, the first of the prophets, and listen to everything they said. He said, no, wait a minute, listen to my son, because his words are my words. And he's going to explain to you all those mysteries of the Old Testament. How on earth do the blood of bulls and goats actually forgive sins? Well, they don't, because it's going to be his blood. So pay attention to him. Because he's going to bring the Old Testament into its completion and fulfillment. He's the preeminent one. Well, I've tried as best as I can over the last couple of days. And I, you tell, I can tell you, there are times like this, I, I never feel so inadequate. But I think that one question that I have not answered is why. And I've talked about it a little bit, but I never have actually said, why did God do this? Well, I think that the way that we can answer that in a very short period of time, I'm going to be very brief with this, is to discuss who benefited from this. For whose benefit was the transfiguration? Well, I don't think I'm silly when I say this, but the answer is everyone. Everyone who actually witnesses it whether it's a believer or non-believer, then or now. Everyone who witnesses this transfiguration benefits from it in some way. I think Jesus benefited from it. I think God had sent actually Moses and Elijah to begin the bolstering process. Jesus has got a terrible uh, event ahead of him. In 51st verse, he's going to turn his face towards Jerusalem. And the cross is looming large in his life. And so therefore, I believe he sent these two men to reaffirm his place in redemptive history. And, and actually, his glory. I can only imagine in his humanity what it must have done to see his own glory. 
the glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's also hugely beneficial to those apostles. Because you see, all three of them and the ones that they would tell about this and when they would write it down, all three of them are going to be asked to deny themselves, to pick up their crosses daily, and to follow Jesus. They're all going to die torturous deaths. John alone is going to be the one that is, is not going to be the, 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 actually be executed that way. But they tried to boil him in oil and they exiled him to the island of Patmos. He, he suffered his entire life. And so the question is, do you think that these men ultimately would die, would go to their deaths gladly if Jesus was just a great teacher, if he was just a great preacher? No, it's essential that they know who they're following. This is God of the flesh. This is the Logos who became the word. I mean, who was the word who walked in in, and amongst us. And so therefore, when it comes time for Peter to be crucified upside down, when it comes time for James, the first of the martyrs, to be killed by the sword in Jerusalem, they will do so without question because they're not going to deny their Lord because they've seen the glory. Peter says we don't follow cleverly conceived uh, things. We've seen his majesty. And John, of course, says we've seen his glory, as we have said several times. So I think it benefited the apostles. And moving into more recent times, actually the entire span of the church, I think it actually benefits the unbeliever. And if you're an unbeliever, if you don't actually believe in any of this, and I, I can't imagine why you would still be listening to me if you are, but these are warnings, and the Bible's full of them. It's, it's, when you stand before God, just because you don't believe in it does not mean it's not going to happen. Just because you reject Jesus as the preeminent one of all humanity does not mean that he is not. And when you stand before a holy God and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? And you are dumbfounded and stupefied because you've got nothing to say. You cannot say that no one ever told you. Because the Bible has warned you. Now, in, in, in the way that the Bible warns us, and actually the way that I would like to be warning you right now, it, it's not warning you with anger or, you know, uh, looking down on you. It's a compassionate desire. If you were walking off the side of a cliff into a, a lake of molten lava, I would try to stop you. I, I would warn you. I would tell you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to step off of that. And yet you're doing exactly the same thing now. Stepping off a spiritual cliff to fall into a, an eternal punishment. Because God in his holiness cannot overlook your sins. So it is my prayer that you will take the warning. And that you will recognize that the one that we worship is not just a great man, not just a leader and a teacher, but he is indeed the Holy One of God. And finally, it's the group of believers, and I pray that that's most of us, that we truly believe in Jesus. And I believe that this is so essential for us, that we see the preeminent glory of the one we follow. Because yes, as I've said, yes, he's a great teacher. Yes, he's a friend. Yes, he is our savior. Yes, he brought this magnificent standard of ethics that is just simply the best way to live. But brothers and sisters, he is also God. He is God incarnate. And what that means is that he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is infinite. And he is eternal. He stands right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in his glory and in this glorified state that you're getting a glimpse of here. When he comes again, he will come in that glory. That is the Lord that we, we, we serve. He's also all loving. He's all compassionate. He's all gracious. He is full of grace and truth, even as we have said many times, but he will also Rule and judge the nations with a rod of iron. That is the holy God. He cannot simply wink at sin. So therefore, he is God in the flesh who came and tabernacled amongst us. And without him, there is no salvation. So let me leave you with this thought. Why should I follow Jesus? Jesus has just said to any of you who are his disciples, who say you follow him. He has just made something very clear. If you would come after me, 
Deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Why would I do that? What would lead me to give up my life for his? What would lead me to forget about all my aspirations, all my dreams, all my plans, everything that I've got in mind for myself and, 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 and all that I had plotted out? Why would I give all those up and submit myself and my will to Christ? Well, first of all, I can tell you a reason I didn't do it. He did it. I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for his grace and his glory and transforming my heart and coming in and calling me out of darkness. And so I give him all the glory for that. But it is also because he's not a man, just a man. He's not just a teacher. He's not just my friend. I've seen his glory because I know that this is the word of God. I know that God is speaking to me and telling me that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And I am following God himself to wherever he leads me. And yes, I'll submit myself to him. Yes, I'll follow him. And I would like to think that if it ever came to it, I would die for him. But you know... It's may change. I may eat these words later on. But I don't think that most of us are going to die for the cause of Christ. Things are changing rapidly. Uh, there's, there's, there's thundering and problems about. But I don't think that, at least in my lifetime, uh, maybe some of you younger, um, that you'll be called upon to make a decision that so many of the early church made. Deny Jesus and live. Stick with him and die. And that you would actually die for Christ. So most of us are, are, are going to be faced with a question. What is the real significance then to me of this transfiguration? Well, first of all, the first real answer why has nothing to do with us. It is for the glory of God and for the glory of the Lamb. It is his revelation of his glory that brought this about. But as far as we are concerned, if, if it's not doesn't mean for us to pick up our cross and follow him daily. In other words, being willing to die. I think more importantly right now, it's being willing to live for Christ. It is being willing to give up your life for him, to deny yourself. As Jesus just said, to lose your life in this world, but to gain it for his sake in the world to come, to, to lose it to him, to give yourself over wholly to him. And I think that leaves us with a poignant question, and I'm going to leave you with this question. We've already seen that Jesus is the preeminent one. That's what this passage is about, to tell you that Jesus is preeminent over all things. Is he preeminent in your life? You think about that. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this amazing text, and once again, I pray that your spirit has done such a work this morning to stand in between my words and the understanding of those who are hearing them, that your illumination would bring us to repentance whether we're believers or unbelievers, that we would repent and recognize that we, we, we don't live our lives as, as with you being the most preeminent part of our life. We take it back constantly. We're, we're like live sacrifices that squirm off the altar constantly. But Lord, we pray that you will continue to bring us back, that it'll be daily that we lose our identity to you and we pick up those crosses and follow you. We'll give you all the glory. You are the preeminent one. It is in your name we pray. Amen.